Meanwhile, on the God Beat. Hey, Godbeat listeners, this is Sandy Villarreal. I'm the web editor and chief digital officer here at Sojourners. And today we wanted to try something a little different and just have a conversation about the Godbeat. Uh, what is it? What makes it unique? And why is it so important? So we invited Emma Green and McKay Coppins over for a chat. They are both on the politics team at The Atlantic. Emma is very well known for her nuanced reporting on religion and people of faith. And McKay has long reported at the intersection of politics and religion. He covered the Trump campaign, and he previously was senior political writer over at BuzzFeed. I hope you enjoy the conversation as so much as So one of the did. reasons I wanted to have this conversation is that I think, especially in light of the election, there's there seems to have been kind of a lack of religious literacy in a lot of our newsrooms, um, or at least kind of like an ongoing deprioritization of religion reporting over the years. Um, but I feel like The Atlantic seems to get it right a lot of the time. Um, and, and, you know, you contextualize for a mainstream audience some of these um, religious uh, background to these stories. Um, I thought one piece in particular, one of your pieces that did this really well was um, around Mike Pence's story about how he didn't have dinner with women other than his wife. And I think there were a lot of mainstream religion or mainstream stories that were kind of screaming headlines of you know how awful this is and without any real discussion of the roots of it which do you go back to evangelical culture and people brought up the billy graham role and so for stories like that what do you do what do you feel like is your kind of particular role or your approach to reporting out those stories um, and I'd be interested in McKay's thoughts on this too. I think for us as a magazine, we have a little bit more freedom than, for example, a newspaper of record might, um, and certainly a little bit more heft than a random blog might, uh, in that we can come at a story from an argument angle and sort of offer analysis about the way to look at something, but also always bring original reporting to it. In that story in particular, that was something that was brewing overnight after a Washington Post profile had gone up of Mike Pence. Ironically, the piece of the Washington Post profile, or sorry, the Washington Post profile was of Mike Pence's wife. Um, and the piece of it that had gotten surfaced was this portion of an interview that he had done years and years ago when he was in Congress. Um, and people were mad about it, and we were trying to bring context and history to it. I looked up the old interview that had been done and tried to actually pull out context from that and then pull in a little bit of reporting and research that we had from other stories and books and articles online. Um, so you can do quick things like that. But in general, um, with reporting, I think it's always important to listen to people, find multiple perspectives, try to really understand what people are saying and where they're coming from rather than bringing pre-existing uh, judgments or sort of pre-existing frames of thinking to really try to understand where people are coming from. And I think that applies to this story. Mm -hmm. What response did you get for that story in particular? Do you get kind of appreciation for that, for putting it in per into perspective for, for folks? Yeah, I think for that story, you know, it's funny, these outrage cycles go in waves. So there's sort of the first wave with that one was sort of the feminist outcry. And then the second was, you terrible liberals, I can't believe you're mocking Mike Pence. And then I feel like I was part of a third wave, which was like, eh, eh <laughs> calm down. You know, it's fine. Here's, here's what this is and what this means. Um, and I, I think at that point, at the time that I sort of weighed in, people were ready for that wave. I don't know. What it, what's uh, your well, I think, that, I think you're being modest. Because I think also, the thing about Emma, like, 
I'm relatively new to the Atlantic. I just started working here a few months ago. But before I joined, Emma was known as like one of the like two or three religion writers, reporters in the country that like everyone could could trust to give them a fair shake. Like I feel like the there's so much of writing and reporting about religion is first of all done by people for whom that's not actually their beat it's like sort of a side interest or it's uh, occasionally touches their beat and so they don't come at it with any expertise or even just a self-interested need to not you know burn sources and and uh and you know rant about things so like Emma is known, and like I, any time I would talk to people about joining the Atlantic, people of faith especially, but really anyone, they would like talk about, oh yeah, they do really good faith coverage, and they're really talking about Emma. Um, McKay, but, you're being too nice. This is nice. So let me tell lesson. you some more things I like about Emma. No, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I prepared some notes for you, so you could just make them. Um, no, but. But I, I do feel like the thing that's... So we talk about religion literacy in newsrooms, which is a huge issue. Um, <clears throat> but even beyond literacy, like something even more fundamental than that is just the willingness to take religion seriously mm -hmm. and people who are religious uh, take them seriously. Like there, I, I just feel like pe so many writers and journalists and reporters, commentators, whatever... Um, who are overwhelmingly secular, right? Don't uh, and increasingly so. Just don't have a lot of experience with religion in their own lives. Um, they just feel like they can easily paint paint religious people with a broad brush, caricature them, dismiss them, um, and they really won't face any repercussions, right? Like there will be no repercussions from their editors who probably also don't know uh, that much about religion. There probably won't be a huge outcry from their normal readers mm -hmm. if they work at a place that has an overwhelmingly secular readership. Um, and and certainly their peers, their journalistic peers, aren't going to call them out on it for the most part, right? Um, so there's not a lot of incentive to take people of faith seriously. But I feel like just being willing to do that even if you don't have a lot of literacy, even if you don't know a ton about religion, um, whether from experience or just from reading and research, like if you if you take if you start at a place where you're taking people of faith seriously, you're going to go through the you're going to do the work that's necessary to get it right, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, and and that's what I, I feel like is often lacking in in media. I don't know. Is that do you agree with that? Um, I think that's definitely right, and what adds to that are the monoliths that people come back to when they are reporting on religion. All reporting requires shorthands and categories for people to understand what's going on, but in the religion world, I think it can be particularly reductive. So the category of evangelicals, I'm sure, mm -hmm. Sandy, I will tell you things <laughs> that you are well familiar with. Um, can I The category of evangelical can be this extraordinary monolith that's used as a, a sort of touchstone to represent you know, alternatively conservative Christians, or if, you know, you're writing for a left-wing publication that's particularly secular, like, you know, sort of evil people, right? Like, those are sort of interchangeably <laughs> used. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right on the left. Um, not what we think, but, no, you know, yeah. right. on the left. Um, and, and I think, on the one hand, that's a set of bad habits that the media has collectively developed and hasn't taken the time to sort of debunk as a practice within the industry writ large. Uh, but I think even deeper than that, religion reporting presents the challenge of knowledge, which is it's really easy to mess up 
once you scratch the surface, you realize how complicated and deep it goes. I mean, we could have a denomination off about yes. how many evangelical denominations there are, Christian denominations notwithstanding, because that's just a whole other thing. Um, this gets extremely complicated very quickly, and to know the ins and outs and to understand, you know, it's something I found to be very important, to understand the holes not to step in is really, really hard. So I think that adds to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So. This conversation actually started because uh, I ran into McKay at the International Symposium of Online Journalism, where he was on a panel talking about accountability journalism in the Trump era. So this underlying underlying sentiment was kind of like, how did the media get this wrong, right? right. Like that, that was that was the question, and everybody kind of flagged well diversity within newsrooms. Um, interestingly, talking about diversity of like middle Americans, right? We're kind of in our East Coast liberal bubbles, and we, we're not hearing from middle America. Mm. Um, we aren't talking, of course, about the fact that newsrooms still have a diversity problem of ethnic and gender diversity, but how does that play out uh, in religious diversity? How important is it to get that right, and how can we even go about doing that? It is, I think it's really important, but I, I, it, I feel like it's an uphill battle convincing news outlets that are very concerned about uh, diversity in general as a principle to include religion in that. And there are like logistical issues, right? Like, yeah. for example, you can't legally ask a job applicant what their religion is, right? right? Or what religious experience they have. Um, so that makes it harder to uh, make sure that you're hiring people of faith. It's And it's also true, I think, that um, as opposed to with uh, um, sexual orientation or obviously gender or race, uh, I think that people are much more, especially in our current uh, environment, people are much more willing to, who are reporters uh, or writers or people in the media, to talk about those aspects of their identity in public. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not being asked about it in a job interview, editors will say, oh, well, I know that that so-and-so reporter talks all the time about um, LGBT mm -hmm. stuff and, and they're openly gay on, on Twitter or whatever. And so that can you know help them uh, with diversity in that respect. But there is not the same, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but in my experience, there's not the same openness about uh, religion. I mean, I, I'm Mormon. I don't actually talk, you know, I, I tweet uh, too many times a day about politics and about my life and stuff. And I will, I'll, I'll mention, you know, going to church or uh, various Mormon things from time to time, but I don't. I'm I'm not always talking about sure. it, right? Um, and I think people know. I'm people in our industry know I'm Mormon because uh, I've written a few pieces about it. Mm -hmm. But like beyond that, I think a lot. So it, so all of that is to say, it, it is hard. Uh, and I'll give uh, editors and, and hirers and employers the benefit of the doubt that it is hard to to hire more religious people and make sure that you're doing that. But I do think it's so important. Like I I feel like if you're going to be committed to diversity as a principle in your organization, you have to include religion in it. Um, and one of the things that's most, uh, makes newsrooms most homogenous, uh, you know, there are a lot of things, but one of them is just the widespread secularness, right? <laughs> the, yeah. the like widespread lack of, and, and I'm not saying that everyone needs to go to church every weekend, but like people who just don't have any experience or haven't had any experience since they were little kids with, with you know, religion or faith, it does skew your coverage. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say as a Mormon, like as somebody who's part of a religious tradition and religious community that is relatively small and often misunderstood and often misrepresented in the media. 
it does make me realize how um, at like how easy it is to get things wrong, even if you have good intentions, and even if you go into a reporting experience with good faith, um, to, that you can just get small things wrong or get a note a little bit off, and it probably doesn't seem like it's that important to 99% of readers, but to the people in that religious community, it's hugely meaningful and consequential. Sure. And so I feel like in, increasing the religious representation in newsrooms is one way to address that. I agree completely with everything that you just said. So check, 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 affirm 100%. I will add, though, in the flip side, that uh, I, I think diversity in hiring on all aspects is always important because it gives people the eyes with which to see. You can see and imagine stories in a way that you couldn't if you didn't come from a particular background. And that is a richness and a texture that all news coverage can benefit from. Mm. I think the other side, though, is that people as journalists have an obligation to step outside of their boundaries and comfort zones to try to understand things that are foreign to them. I have often thought that the diversity and hiring conversation can be a little bit myopic when it comes to this idea that only people who come from a certain type of background can be reporting on or speaking for certain communities. Um, I think that's actually anathema to journalism. I think lifting up voices of people who have certain experiences, trying to understand them, is absolutely the obligation of journalists. But the idea that there has to be a spokesperson who represents yeah. one of every kind, It can also wrong. pigeonhole those reporters, absolutely. right? Like if you're forcing the, the gay reporter to only write about LGBT right. issues. That's right, or, or the, the black reporter, reporter to yeah, only write exactly. about race. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, ultimately it shows a commitment from newsrooms if you're sending out a reporter into a situation that is foreign to them or maybe not totally foreign, but at least not something that they share as part of their personal background and still requiring a standard of excellence for them to get it right through deft reporting, careful listening, and over time, hopefully a development of a beat or a familiarity with the area. I think that is an equally good or at least an alternatively good commitment um, to showing that you take it seriously in your newsroom. Right. And The Atlantic does things a little bit differently than, say, a traditional religion beat. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? I know you're on the politics team, but you write a lot about religion. Um, is it kind of infused throughout? Um, what is the expectation for that beat, as it were? So The Atlantic is bizarre because we don't actually have beats, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's a blessing because we have freedom to roam and write about whatever we want. I've been encouraged by my editor to write about ballet dancing or whatever it is that I'm interested in, which I am casually, but I don't know if I'll write any articles about that. Um, that's a great thing. But uh, it is kind of interesting because we tend to have people who flow into different areas and it's not always clear sort of what someone's lane is. Mm -hmm. um, I think for me, I've kind of fallen into a self-described beat of religion, even though it's not technically my job or assignment, mm -hmm. uh, because I you know, like watching the religion world. I think it's really interesting and has lots of fodder. So I generally am the fall girl whenever there's something happening in the American religion world, uh -huh. and that's sort of the expectation. Um, we also just got a grant to do more global religion funding, and we have a new editor who's working on that, so that's great. Um, and then across our newsroom, I think we've had more interest in trying to have some of those religious angles show up in our science and health coverage, mm -hmm. um, to have it show up in business, to have it show up uh, in all of these different departments. And I think ultimately that's the best way to think through um, religion because it does cut through everything and it's all topic areas. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so 
I was talking to another religion reporter earlier this week who said that uh, he works for a, a national publication that his uh, religion stories, he's in a traditional religion beat, uh, tend to drive a lot of traffic to the site. Um, Who's that? <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> um, well, I mean, at other publications, that certainly doesn't seem to be the case, right? That, that uh, on, in national publications, for a traditional religion story to get A1 play is not very common. Um, and is that an editorial decision? How do we shift this assumption that these so-called religion stories aren't going to resonate uh, with a, a wide audience in, in an effort to give it play? I feel, well, so I feel like the, the, the way, so it's true, like, if you're going by kind of old media standards of, like, a story is important if it's on A1 of a newspaper, yeah. like, yeah, it'll probably, it's probably never going to be, be the case that religion beat stories regularly show up on A1 of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but, you know, as thing, as the media landscape has shifted and the way that we consume media has shifted and these kind of digital social media platforms have become the most powerful forces in media in a lot of ways, I think that it's made, it's actually kind of, and, and Emma, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like it's given kind of a renaissance to the religion beat because they're, like, there are readers for these stories. There are millions and millions of readers for these stories. It's just that they probably didn't, necessarily all subscribe to the print edition of the New York Times or the Washington Post, but um, there are millions of people who want to read these stories and, and it's easier than ever for them to find them and, and read them and share them and comment on them and debate them mm -hmm. um, and, and have, have, have these stories kind of be inserted into the conversations that are already taking place in these communities online. Um, I've found that religion stories that I've written, especially including ones that touch politics and ones that don't, um, and, and especially like the ones that I've written about Mormonism from a personal like identity, you know, standpoint, like they do extremely well online in terms of traffic. And, and I think it's, yeah, there's just a lot of people talking about this stuff already. And when you can inform that conversation or, or feed it, uh, or, uh, or play off it, then it uh, I, I, you get rewarded with the, the readers, I think. I definitely agree. I think the traffic is the dirty little secret of the religion beat. Um, <laughs> and it, this is one thing that I've never understood about why newsrooms aren't prioritizing religion coverage. I think there are many, many reasons that come ahead of traffic, which is it's important, mm. readers want to read it, um, you know, it's a way of balancing out your coverage, all of this stuff. But in addition to that, there's this very cynical reason that's just laying there on the table, which is it's going to be great for yeah. your publication and bottom line. So I just, I've never understood why it's not a renaissance in terms of hiring and, yeah. and strategy too. Um, a renaissance of clicks though. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, the best kind of renaissance. Um, it, sort of building off what McKay said, you know, something I've been shocked by over time, although less so now, is this, the low threshold for gratitude for stories. And that's not uh, me trying to say, oh, people are so grateful for the great work that I do. It's more... Um, when people give me feedback or people are writing in, usually the things that they're writing in about are very basic, which is, I was so glad that you even paid attention to this. I was so glad to see somebody who looks like me, you know, being someone who represents a large portion of people in the United States, show up in the Atlantic. I was so glad to see that you all even cared about this. To me, that's really striking because that's an expression from someone who hasn't seen themselves or their stories reflected a lot in the mainstream media. 
And I think it's a sign to us that we need to continue thinking about how to do that work ever better and ever more expansively, um, particularly because that kind of seriousness that McKay was talking about earlier, being able to treat religious questions and religion stories with seriousness, I think is a way to build reader loyalty and to signal to them that you do care about what they're going through and thinking about. Um, and for us, over time, that's ultimately the most important thing is letting readers know that we think that their lives and stories are important. So that's where I think the eye on the ball has to be with the sort of trump card in the back that uh, it will be good for us too. <laughs> the low threshold is so true. I wrote a piece of, a couple months ago when uh, Trump, Donald Trump, <laughs> Donald Trump president, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, <laughs> um, he nominated Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I wrote just like a short piece about how for a lot of conservative Christians, who were like wary of Donald Trump and weren't sure if they could bring themselves to vote for him for any number of reasons, uh, ended up doing it because of the Supreme Court and, be and for this one reason, and they felt validated or vindicated in that decision with this the nomination of this very conservative and credentialed uh, Supreme Court justice. And it was like a pr fairly obvious point, I felt like, but I got a lot of feedback from conservative Christians who were like, thank you for pointing this out. and. For for like for explaining this in like a fair way and not for calling us hypocrites and blah blah yeah. like it like like the and it just was like shocking to me because I'm like I mean this is, seemed really obvious to me but they felt like so little of that kind of conflict and their and their uh, wrestling with you know this current political moment. Uh, had been portrayed in the mainstream media, so they were really grateful. It was, but it was funny because it was like, man, you guys have really been like abused by <laughs> the media to be that grateful for this like kind of yeah. obvious short piece. Yeah, I mean, sticking with that a little bit and staying on politics and evangelicals, um, there's a number that comes up pretty much every day at Sojourners, and that's the 81% mm. number, the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump. Um, as reporters who cover politics, but with an eye to religion, was that surprising? <clears throat> to me it was, I, I will say. Like, I'm not gonna claim special prescience. I don't know though, I mean look, like I understand how it happened and I and mm -hmm. certainly there, there are all kinds of historic trends on, in, on the religious right over the last several decades that would lead you to understand how uh, they would be willing to pull the lever for a Republican regardless of who he was. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I was I was surprised. Part of the reason is because I was I also wrote a lot during the campaign about the Mormon response to Donald Trump, and I think Mormons who are who are the most the most reliably Republican religious group in the country voted for Donald Trump. I think fifty eight percent or something like that. Um, so still, he still won Mormons, but it was a much right. it was it was a massive drop off from not just Mitt Romney, who was a Mormon, but from George W. Bush and other Republican uh, presidential candidates. So, um, so I guess I kind of part of me kept expecting that same dynamic to play out with at least some segment of those. And obviously, look, twenty percent of, of white evangelicals didn't vote for him, or nineteen percent, right. whatever. But I, I kept thinking that of that, especially after the that. Access Hollywood tape yeah. came out, and I kind of felt like that you would see the number drop, and you you didn't end up seeing it. So I was surprised. But Emma's more uh, will be better better uh, equipped to answer that question. I, I'm interested <laughs> in her answer. The surprise the surprise framing is is tough because I do think. 
the experience of 2016 was about uh, the sense of prediction being confounded over and over again. So I don't know that I had any firm thoughts by the time we got to election day. That's right. That's right. Um, I I guess a couple of ways that I would think about that. First, one of the things that we've been revisiting a lot after the election from data is what could have predicted these people's votes? What are the factors that are actually relevant? Um, And one thing that's come up again and again, I think this is supported pretty broadly in the political science literature, is that you can't necessarily assume that one identity factor is being privileged over the other. And I do think that for a lot of white evangelicals who tend to clump together in terms of the way that they behave in a lot of you know voting patterns, demographic patterns, that kind of stuff, um, they tend to be Republicans, and Republicans tend to vote for Republicans. Right. Um, so I, I think that's one way of solving the mystery. It could be that they weren't voting as white evangelicals. In that moment, they were sort of voting as someone who's identified as a Republican. Um, I, I do think, too, that you can't discount the freakishness of the 2016 election mm-hmm. in the sense that the two candidates who were on offer, I think for a lot of people, felt like terrible options. And for me, one of the factors, which was interesting, I did some reporting at Liberty University in October before the election, hearing how young white evangelicals were thinking through this question of who they were going to vote for. There was a lot of back and forth, and I could get into that and talk about that for days. But one thing that I heard again and again was the sense of uh, duty and necessity to engage. People feeling not only that they needed to vote, but that they may not even vote for a third party candidate because they didn't feel like that was really fully participating in their democracy. And some of them also liked Trump or were fine with Trump. Um, But I I think you can't discount um, sort of that twine and feeling of obligation to participate. Um, And if Trump is your major party choice, then maybe that's just the decision that you have to make. Um, And I think the final thing, and this is probably a point that you all have made 16,000 times on your website, as has everybody, um, but the history with Hillary Clinton is also another sort of weirdness of 2016 that you can't get rid of, which is she has a history with this population in particular, um, probably was seen in part because of some of her own choices and actions, particularly ways that she answered, for example, questions on abortion during the third debate as somebody who wasn't an option for that population. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all of this, again, is probably analysis that you all have revisited a million times. And what I'm mostly thinking about now is what does this mean for the future? Um, what does that 81% number mean for people of color who are worshiping in these predominantly white spaces? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean for how evangelicals are thinking about their own political identity? Uh, what does it mean for the next generation of evangelicals who are thinking about this election mm-hmm. as sort of their political coming-of-age moment? So looking forward on, on the faith beat, so to speak, what's the learning opportunity for, for newsrooms? Um, how can we take some lessons learned from this past year um, and invest in the right places? What, what would that look like in mainstream outlets? Hire more religion reporters. <laughs> <laughs> Boom market. <laughs> it, it really is true. Like I, I just well, I, I, I want to reemphasize the point that Emma made. Like there is a lot of like even if it's literally just for self interest, there is a, there are a lot of readers yeah. to be had by writing about religion. Yeah. Um, the other thing about religion is that, and Emma and I have talked about this, is that like, it touches every aspect of American life, yeah. right? Um, it, t- it certainly touches politics, we know that. Um, and, and politics may be the area where religion is written about the most, and I don't know if that's actually great, because I feel like it's given license to a lot of people to think of religion only in political terms, yeah. right? But it touches business, it touches culture, uh, you know, the arts. It, I mean, every... Every other beat in the media, every other segment of, of American life 
it, it can be in, it is infused with religion in some way, um, and it can be written about and covered, and and not, I mean, not just not having the curiosity to explore that. I really do think is an abdication of responsibility, and it, and it's just weird. It's weird that so many news outlets just don't care enough about it. Um, so yeah, I I mean I really like just a lot more people writing about it would be great, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I agree with that, and. Another call to hire religion reporters. In addition, um, two resolutions for myself that could be maybe useful for others. Um, the first is highlighting diversity within monoliths. So, you know, we've been using evangelicals as an example. I think this is true within all populations Muslims, Jews, whatever. There are always different stories and different angles to be taking. Uh, groups who have constituency interests that we don't often highlight or talk about and trying to find those stories and understand the tensions between them, internecine tensions, I think is a really great thing to continue focusing on now more than ever when the 81% type number gets really lifted up. Uh, and the other thing is trying to challenge, and I always try to challenge myself on this, but trying to challenge the industry more broadly to think critically about who we're holding up as representatives of particular faiths. Mm -hmm. I think about this again a lot with conservative Christians, the role of people who people call again and again and again to putatively represent a giant and diverse population when in fact those constituencies may have nothing to do with the people who are speaking for them in the press. So trying to reach out to a lot of different people and think critically about not returning to those same figures and just rely on those assumptions. Yeah. So for, for people who are um, maybe thinking about jumping into the religion reporting world, uh, what advice would you have for them? Uh, because it is such a tricky topic, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So how would somebody get started on that? Um, well, the first thing I would say is not to, and I think you made this point earlier, uh, Sandy, or, or maybe it was Emma, I can't remember, but somebody made this point, and it's worth bringing up again, that you don't have to have a religious background to cover religion. And so if you're kind of way, if you're, if you're a young reporter or, or a more experienced reporter looking for beats, like, don't feel like, oh, well, religion should be left to the religious people, right? First of all, because there are fewer and fewer of religious people in the national media, yeah. um, but also just because it, it's not necessary, right? Like you, you can definitely do a great job covering faith, regardless of what your background or upbringing or personal experience or beliefs are. Um, so that would be one thing I would say. Um, and then, yeah, like I mean, beyond the obvious journalism, like getting started in journalism tips, which are like you know. Uh, get get a lot of clips. Find 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 <laughs> opportunities to write a lot. You know, like I, I would say that like to keep in mind that there is a religion angle to basically every story, right? Jeez. You don't need to go out and especially if you're getting started and you're not really well versed in this stuff. Like it might seem daunting to try to do religion reporting at the level that Emma does, for example. Like you, you probably can't do that right at the beginning, but like. Find something that you are already interest, very interested in, knowledgeable about, um, uh, you know, have experience with, and then just go find the religion angle there, or one of the many religion angles, whether it's sports or, uh, or entertainment or, or media or politics or whatever. Uh, that a good way to start is to just find a faith angle that touches something you're already familiar with, and, and that'll give you the confidence to, to start. That's really good advice. And the other thing I'd add to that is people are really willing to help 
especially on religion because of that low threshold bar. I think reaching out to experts, to religious leaders, pastors, these folks want to see their religious groups covered well and they'll be happy to get on the phone and help to navigate that with young reporters. Um, so it's a great thing and a great resource for all journalists, one of the best things about the job. And the final thing I'll say is I'll give a plug to the Religion News Writers Association, uh, which is a, a small but uh, honorable group of people who get together once a year to discuss all things religion. Be McKay is going to join. He's told me that he's going to join the organization. <laughs> Yes, you see, I announced it before you'd actually made <laughs> you the promise. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, this is, it, you know, an it's an association for religion writers, and I think has been a wonderful resource for me, and is a great gathering spot for all religion reporters. Really nice people. The Faith Beat is the nicest beat out really there. Really yeah. Um, so join. Nashville this fall. Yes, come party with us in <laughs> September. Great, and that will be the final word. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really Thank appreciate you. it. <laughs>